If you go with me to John chapter 6, I got a whole lot of scripture to read with you. I got it on the screen. I hope that you have a little bit of grace today because I want to uh, make sure that we read all of the scripture that I believe God has for us this morning. Last week, we talked about strategically reaching in the places or reaching the people that God has put in our hearts to reach, right? Last week, we talked about the need to make sure that we reach and strategically, intentionally put ourselves in a place where we're connecting with people, where we're loving people who don't know him and leading them to Jesus. Today, I want to talk about the Jesus way. I want to talk about discipleship, the Jesus way. When we look at the Bible, what does the Bible tell us about the way Jesus called people, about the way Jesus did life with people, about the message that Jesus preached to people? And I am convinced of this. I'm 100% convinced of this reality. I don't think there's anyone in the world that could ever claim to make better disciples than Jesus. I'm convinced of that. Jesus Christ makes disciples better than anyone in the world. Now, it's funny, and some would say, well, of course, you know, but the reality is that there's a movement, the Mormon movement, their leader said that I am greater than Jesus Christ because none of my disciples have departed from me. And so I think that's a boast from hell itself. Okay, Jesus Christ, I believe, is 100% the best discipler the world has ever seen. Now, we can disciple at a greater level than Jesus did in some sense because the Holy Spirit is in us. So now the person of Christ disciples through us, right? So we're able to disciple throughout the world at a greater magnitude, but it is still the very presence, the very person of Jesus. Jesus says, greater things than I've done, you will do. But it is to the per- through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, in light of that, when I look at the scripture and I look at the way that Jesus discipled, I think, boy, wouldn't it be a good idea if the church looked at the way Jesus discipled and said, let's do things like Jesus. <laughs> Mind blown, right? I know it seems like, well, isn't that, that just seems simple. That, that should be easy, right? We're convinced that he knows how to make disciples, that he's shown us the way. We're convinced that if we look at the scriptures, that we're going to be able to have a template to be able to do what God's called us to do. It should be simple, right? But the reality of the matter is that it's really countercultural. And of course, being a disciple of Jesus is countercultural in the church. I mean, in the world, of course, it's countercultural in the world. But I'm saying that a lot of times, even within the church, uh, it's a countercultural thing to do life and to minister the way that Jesus did. So what do I mean by that? Someone say, what do you mean, Pastor, that sometimes the church does things in, in a countercultural way to the way that Jesus discipled? Well, it means this. Sometimes churches focus on attendance. And when attendance is valued, discipleship takes a back seat. Sometimes churches focus on personal agendas, you know, what, what matters to me. And so because we know that people are interested in certain things, we want to just cater to that one thing. And so because the idea is to fill the temple with people. And so sometimes personal agendas are embraced and therefore discipleship diminishes or takes a back seat. Sometimes some people are, you know, all about the miracles and all about the dreams and all about the supernatural signs. And sometimes even in those environment, environments, when miracles and dreams and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are 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 to the max, you know, like always sought after, discipleship takes a back, by a back seat. Even sometimes some churches are, are driven by events, you know, 
just looking at the next event. Some Sunday, really, in some regard, is an event, right? We're gathered here today. We're worshiping God together. We're encouraging each other in the Lord, in the community, experience the presence of God. Sometimes some of us just go from one event to another event, right? And so even that, when we live our lives that way, discipleship takes a back seat when that's the only way that we uh, encounter the presence of God. So we will notice in Scripture, in the Scripture that we read today, that Jesus limited the attendance around him. That the way Jesus made disciples is that he limited the attendance around him. We'll notice that Jesus confronted personal agendas We'll notice that he rebukes those who seek for miracles and for signs. And we'll also notice that Jesus puts events in their place. Okay. We want to look at John chapter 6. We're going to read this long portion of Scripture. We're going to notice that a lot of the things that I think at times we tend to focus on are things that Jesus put on the back seat for the bigger thing, for the greater thing. Amen? So you're ready to read a good long portion of Scripture with me? Are you ready? Say amen. amen. Okay. John chapter 6, verse 22 on down reads this way. On the next day, I want you to just know a little bit about what's going on. Jesus has done some miracles, but here, right before this, he's done one of the greatest miracles that he's done, which is that he's fed the 5,000. And we know that back then they only counted um, men, right? So we're talking about possibly tens uh, or, or even more of thousands of people. It's just kind of the way that they counted before, but it was kind of an awareness that it wasn't just men when they said 5,000. So you could just imagine the multitude of people that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fishes. And just think about that. And there were 12 basketfuls. I mean, just think about that reality, right? That would be powerful to see or to experience. That has happened. After that happened, the disciples went to the other side through Galilee. Jesus was not with them, but then Jesus decides to meet them by walking on water. It's always awesome, right? Just walk on water, meet the disciples on the other side. And the people are wondering where Jesus went. Right? They're wondering, where did he go? And that's where we're at here in John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with, with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. All the boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten and bread, the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I want you to pause there and notice the way Jesus answered. Notice that Jesus did not answer their question. Their question was, Rabbi, when did you come here? A lot of times Jesus doesn't answer the question that we're asking because we're asking the wrong question. We're not addressing the right issue. Jesus did not answer their question, but he did answer the question. That he addressed the issue that needed to be addressed. The only reason you're seeking me is because you ate bread. Yeah. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? 
our father, St. Manna, in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Very important. Pause. Highlight that right there. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Should you just think about what Jesus is saying here? I think there's a couple people who are saying, Jesus is a couple fries short of a happy meal. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Notice that Jesus didn't make it more palatable. I want you to didn't make, oh, you have a problem with the flesh, how about the blood? Because you got to drink it. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Here's something that Jesus is doing. You're glorifying Moses. You think that the bread that came down from heaven that Moses gave you is awesome. That's not even close to what I have to give you. That's not even close to who I am because if you eat of me, you're going to have eternal life. So he is clearly making a declaration, I am greater than Moses. And what I have to offer you is greater than what Moses had to offer you. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? 
then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So here is Jesus. Everybody's confounded about what he's saying. And he says, you're offended. You don't understand what I'm saying. But what if you saw me in the glory that is really mine before the Father? Would you be thinking about differently about what I just said to you? Because your carnal man is trying to understand these spiritual things, and your carnal man will never understand these spiritual things because I'm speaking to you about things in the Spirit. And all of the disciples are like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? They're all really struggling. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That scripture's not preached much in churches today. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Here's the style of Jesus. He performs a miracle. The people are drawn to him. When they're drawn to him, he addresses the issue. People respond to his word. People walk away. And then he looks at those who are very close to him and he says, I love you, but you can go too. Because I'm in covenant, I'm calling you to covenant relationship. And in order for us to operate in this covenant relationship, I got to lead with my hands wide open. Give you the freedom to stay or to go. Right? So then, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Come on, let's celebrate Peter right here. It's pretty awesome. Jesus just says some stuff Peter doesn't even understand, and he's like, who am I going to go to? I'm surrendered. We got nowhere else to turn. Only you have the words of eternal life. And how does Jesus respond? Didn't I choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now, I want you to just think of the scene. The 12 disciples are hearing Jesus. They're seeing the multitudes leave Jesus. They're seeing some of the, possibly some of the 70 leave Jesus. Who knows? You know, close people they thought would always stick around. And then they look at Jesus, right, with eyes wide open. It says, and Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, but to whom will we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus immediately after Peter's response says, didn't I choose you all? Yet one of you is a devil. Do you think Peter thought Jesus was talking about him? Like Jesus doesn't clarify he's talking about Judas. I can just picture Peter. Like, what did I say? What's going on here? Like, can you imagine the dynamics here? And Jesus, again, feels no need to explain that statement. But rather, it was preparation for them for that which was to come. Now, what do we learn through Scripture here about the style of Jesus, about the way that Jesus makes disciples? Number one. The disciple of Jesus is called by him to seek him first and not what he has to give. 
Jesus says to those who will follow him, if you're going to follow me, I'm calling you to follow me for who I am and not for what I have to give. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those who are his disciples are committed to making, knowing Jesus, and being in right standing with God the most important and the sole focus of their daily life. They pray and live with the confidence that their needs and their challenges will be met by the grace of God if they would just live their life's focus on seeking God first. Right? The number one thing here, and we're going to enter into some prayer for every point. How does Jesus make disciples? He makes disciples this way. He says, come follow me. Be willing to put aside your cares. Be willing to put aside your concerns. Be willing to put aside your needs. Seek first me, my kingdom, my ways, and seek my righteousness. And I think, what does it mean to seek the righteousness of God? Part of what that means is this. Seek the favor of God. We live in the world who's looking for the favor of men. We live in a world who's looking for the favor of men and the pleasures of, of things and to accumulate more and more in our consumer America. But what Jesus is saying to us, if you're going to follow me, I'm calling you to seek to have my favor above everything else. I believe that God wants us to be a people who say, I prefer knowing that God is pleased with me than having others pleased with what I do for them. Anybody with me? Now, what I want to do is pause right now at this moment. Let's say, Lord, I want to be a person who seeks you first. Let's pray over that right now. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to ask Brother DJ, would you lead us in prayer? Lord, teach us to be seekers of your kingdom first. Yes, God. Lord, I pray that Father, you would, you would quicken our hearts. Yes. Yes, God. And give us a desire and a mind and a wisdom. Yes, God. We ask you in this name. Yes, God. Father, a thirst and a hunger for the things of God. Yes, God. Or a thirst and a hunger to see your hand moving in our yes. lives. Yes, God. Lord, I pray, Father God, you would rise up hmm. with uncontrollable desires to see you, Father. Yes, God. Let us not be satisfied from, from one moment to the next. Yes, God. Satisfied when we see one thing happen and we're content <laughs> and forget about the next step and the next <laughs> opportunity. Yes, God. Let us move in those. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. We stand in agreement and we thank you for those things, Lord. Yes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Number one, Jesus calls us to seek first his kingdom. Thank you, DJ, so much. Secondly, the way Jesus makes disciples is he calls them to do his work. And what is the work of the Lord? To believe in him, to believe in Jesus. And I want to just say something about believing. To believe in Jesus is to obey him. 
To believe in Jesus is to obey him. If I believe in Jesus, it means that I trust his words. If I really truly trust his words, it means that I'll live according to his word. So we have to redeem the word believe and the word believer. To be a believer means that I believe so much that my actions line up to what I believe. That's a true believer. Someone once just asked me last week, well, can one be a Christian and, um, be a, and not be a disciple? No, it's impossible. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. Because if we redeem that word, to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. You can't be Christ-like and not be a disciple. Well, then they said, well, can one be a believer and not a follower of Jesus? No. You can't really be 100% a believer and not follow what Jesus said. If you believe in education, you go get an education, right? If you believe that communication matters in your marriage, you're going to spend time communicating. You practice what you believe. If you don't, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? So to believe in Jesus is to obey his words. We know that we believe. The Bible says we know that we love him if we obey him. James chapter 2 says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but doesn't have works? What good is it if you believe, if you say you believe, but you don't, your works don't line up to the fact that you believe? Can that faith save a person? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, uh, go in peace, be warm. Oh, I pray that God would help you in your time of need. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it is not accompanied with works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you your faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's almost like a, they believe and they shudder. It's like they believe and I'm, I think they have a little bit more reverence and understanding of who God is. They believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As he was called, um, as he, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, belief, faith without the practice is truly useless. So we have to come before God and say, Lord, are there things that I'm saying I believe, but I'm not really walking in? And what do I need to do to get closer to practicing that truth? Or is it a belief that I need to let go of that's not a biblical belief, something that doesn't line up to your truth? Some of us may have some false expectations and things that are not biblical that we need to let go of. But others of us need to see how does our faith really affect our actions? So number one, Jesus makes disciples by calling him to seek him first. 
Jesus makes disciples by calling them to believe and obey, and to believe is to obey, right? To walk according to his truth. Third, the disciple of Jesus, God calls, the, Jesus calls his disciples to be nourished by his sacrifice. Nourished, fulfilled, satisfied by his sacrifice. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Again, we read in that scripture that they talked about Moses and the bread that he gave, and Jesus was trying to get them to align to the greater reality. And this is the point of the miracles. Why does God give us, why does he give us miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all that stuff, the signs and the wonders, to get people's attention? That's a good deal, right? When the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4, let us continue to boldly declare your word and let it be accompanied with signs and wonders. For what purpose? So that it would get people's attention, right? But then after people's attentions were gotten, they weren't supposed to just stay in the land of signs and wonders. They were supposed to progress with signs and wonders into the place of discipleship, right? Into the place of really honoring and seeking the Lord and serving him. And so Jesus says, I know why you're really here. You want some bread. That's why you're really here. But I'm telling you, I'm the bread. I gave you that miracle to get your attention, to tell you that the real bread that you need is me. And then, again, he doesn't make it palatable when they're disgusted at the fact that they're thinking about eating flesh because they're trying to understand it in their carnal minds. He doesn't make it more palatable. Why? Because he needs to prepare them for his sacrifice. Jesus knew, I am going to die, and it is my sacrifice of my body that will be the only thing that will sustain the church, will be the only thing that will sustain those who believe. They have to take in the fact that their peace is found in the lashes on my back. Their healing is found in the fact that I was crushed for their sins. Their forgiveness and their freedom from guilt and from condemnation will only be found when they drink deep of my blood. And of course, not that they're drinking deep of the blood, but they're saying, Lord, I say yes to the blood of Jesus cleansing me from head to toe, consuming me from within and without. Let me be covered. Let me be immersed. Let me be transformed by the precious blood of the Lamb. And he couldn't make that more palatable. Because it is what it is. The truth of the blood, the truth of his body, the truth of his sacrifice. And how important is it? Man, it's so important that he even established the sacrament of eating bread and drinking the wine, right? So we would remember and always remember that his sacrifice is enough. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe today that Jesus' sacrifice is enough for you? Let me ask you another question. How much of your day do you live being weighed down with guilt? How much of your day do you live being weighed down with shame and resentment? Another question. How much of your day do you feel like you cannot enter into the Holy of Holies to have a real talk with God and have God talk to you? How much of your day do you feel unworthy of the presence of God? How much of your day do you live faith-filled that God is going to provide according to his riches and glory because he's done everything that you need. If you're saying, boy, I'm really struggling in all those areas, Pastor, you're not drinking deep. 
you're not eating. And I'm not condemning you. I'm encouraging you. This is good news. The blood is for you. The cross is for you. What Jesus has done for you is good enough right now to satisfy you, to give you contentment, to give you joy, and to give you peace. Even right now, I'd just like to welcome you, challenge you to go home and to say, just begin to meditate on the cross. Meditate on what Jesus has done and say, Lord, I want to live my life free from guilt and from shame. And I want to come before you and drink deep of your blood, eat of your flesh, receive the fullness of your sacrifice. So that when I get up out of here, I would walk in the confidence that I'm a son and a daughter of the living God. Yes. And I will declare your truth in freedom and victory. The sacrifice sustains us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. God calls his disciples to be sustained, to be nourished by his sacrifice. And I'm going to close with this. God wants his disciples to know this. The truth, the truth cannot be improved upon. Truth is the truth. Jesus says some really tough things. Now let's just walk through that one more time. Jesus did this incredible miracle to draw everyone to him. I believe it's the desire of Jesus to draw men to him, all men to him. After the miracle, the people came to Jesus. They had their agenda and they had their questions that really hit their agenda. Jesus, where were you? Let's address the real issue. You just want bread. You just want me to feed you. Let's address it. But I gave you that miracle to let you know that I'm the bread that you really need. I am the bread. And then people had to respond. Some people rejected. Some people turned away. All of them misunderstood. And others in the midst of their misunderstanding surrendered. Dear saint, dear brother and sister in Christ, as you follow Jesus, I want you to know that there will be seasons where you won't be clear about what God has for you. Amen. There will be times where God will speak to you and it will make no sense at the moment what God is saying. There will be times where it seems like God is leading you into fog and not into some clarity. He's calling you up to the mountain. And have you ever seen a mountain when it's covered in the clouds? And he's calling you to a place that you can't see clearly what's going to take place. That moment, God is not going to call you to try to understand what he's doing. God is calling you to surrender to where he's leading. There's a difference. God is not calling you to understand everything he's doing. If you park at that place where you have to understand where everything God's doing, God's going to offend you. You're going to feel like God has disappointed you. At times you're going to feel like God's forsaken you, like he's not there. But the mission for the disciple, the call of the disciple is not to understand everything God's doing. It's just to surrender to Jesus as he leads you wherever he leads you. God's a God of revelation. Oh, God's a God of clarity. God is a God who has good intentions for you, but he does things in his time. The truth cannot be improved upon. Jesus declared some hard truth. 
And you and I need to understand that the truth of Jesus, the message of the gospel is very simple. Salvation is found in Christ alone. He is the bread of life. In him is forgiveness for all. In him, there's mercies that are new every morning. And there's no way to make that more palatable. In order for us to be saved, there was a need for a sacrifice. And we don't need to make it more palatable. And I'll tell you why we don't need to make it more palatable. Because salvation is not your work. Salvation is not my work. Salvation is the work of the Father. When I go and I share the good news with people, it's not like I'm trying to get them to see certain, you know, certain things, you know, that, that it's not like my job is to make it e easier for people to accept Jesus. The job of the kingdom is not to make it easier for people to receive Jesus. The job of, of believers, of disciples, is to represent him well. Salvation is the work of the Father. If the Father is at work, and we believe that he is, and people respond to the revelation of the Father, I'm going to declare the truth of God in grace and in love, and when I declare it, they will receive it or, or they will reject it. But it's the work of the Father. I'm here to represent Jesus. Right? I'm here to represent Jesus. But I believe that we have, we have to be very careful that we don't let go of the old cross and preach a new cross that is no cross at all. A.W. Tozer prophesied many years ago. This is what he prophesied would happen. And I like to read this, and I hope that you have grace to listen to this long portion that I'm reading to you right now. The difference between the old cross and the new cross. All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likeness are superficial, but the difference fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, a new kind of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis is not as before. The old cross would have no part with the world. For Adam and the sin of Adam and the proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law. The new cross is not opposed to the sinful human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean, fun, and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live. It lets the sinful man live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure, only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing body songs or songs that are worldly and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment. Though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, it's still the same. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangel evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life or a throwing away of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrast but similarity. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. 
Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers, only the religious product is better. In other words, the new cross does not kill the sinner. It only redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, anal, jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself in Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. To the Christian, uh, the Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. The old cross is not this. It is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of the sin in our lives. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victims. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. And so, in preaching the new cross, we are not cruel to sin, but we are cruel to the sinner who has no hope. When we preach this new cross, that says it is okay. You can live the way that you live and have Jesus all at the same time. We're not cruel to the sin, but we're really cruel to the sinner who has gone into eternity with no hope. But may the old cross be preached. May Christians not try to improve on the truth, but preach the old cross that kills the sinner and awakens a saint in Christ. Would you stand with me today? Close your eyes with me. I want you to think about the Via Dolorosa. I want you to think with me about the Calvary Road. They ripped his beard off his face. They spat at him. They hit him with heavy blows and said to him, prophesy now who hit you. They beat him with lashes from a whip that would rip skin out every time it pulled back. He was so disfigured that even those who were close to him couldn't recognize him on the cross. They nailed his hands and his feet. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, the Son of God became the sin that you sinned, the sin that God hated, 
so that you and I can be restored to God. He was forsaken. His heart collapsed within. His mouth was so dry that the tongue stuck to the roof. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. They pierced his side. And the last of his belongings they gambled for. He said to the Father, Is it possible that you would take this cup from me? But let it be your will, not my will. And he surrendered to the will of God. Why did he go through that? Because he loves you. Why did he go through that? Because he considered you worth it. Why did he go through that? Because he created you so that you can have a relationship with him without guilt or shame or condemnation. That's the cross Jesus carried for you. He looks to you and he says to you, I carried my cross for you. Will you carry your cross for me? This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. How does Jesus make disciples? He uses signs and wonders to draw attention to him. Then he preaches the truth and allow people to respond to the truth. He calls them into a deeper walk. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're saying, you know, I want to fall in love with the way of Jesus. I want to make disciples. I want to declare the truth of God's word. I want to be a person that really lives sold out and unapologetically for Jesus. If that's you today, you feel the Lord is pricking your heart to be willing to live this way. If that's you, would you come to the altar right now? Come and respond right now. Say, Lord, I want to make disciples the way you made disciples. I don't want to make apologies for your truth. I don't want to make apologies for your word. I can't improve on I can't improve upon your word. I just want to do the things you've called me to do. I realize today that. It is the Father who starts the process. It is the Father who draws near, not me. I'm just a representative. So I yield, I surrender. Maybe you're here today and you are in that place where God's leading you up a cloud and it's filled with dense smoke. It's up the mountain, there's a cloud, there's fog, nothing is clear. And the Lord is calling you to just step out in faith. And he's saying to you, it's not time for you to understand. It's time for you to surrender to my will, to my leading. Maybe you've been fighting that, the Lord because you feel like you need more clarity. And God says, you don't need more clarity. My son, my daughter, what you need is surrender. If that's you today, would you come to the altar right now? Let's pray. You're saying, Lord, I will follow. I will yield. I will surrender to come to the altar right now.
Seek first the kingdom of God, my brothers and my sisters. The word of God says everything that you need will be added to you. Just trust him with that stuff and let it go. Focus on his face. Focus on his face. He's worth it. One last call this morning. If you don't know Jesus today, again, this is for those who are not actively in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're here today and you've not given your life to the Lord. If you're here today and you've not declared, I am a sinner, I am in need of a Savior. And today I received Jesus as my Savior. I asked for his blood to cleanse me of my sin. So he would forgive me. And I give him my burdens because I cannot carry them anymore. If you're here today and you're saying, I welcome God's salvation. And I welcome him as my Lord. And you have not done that yet. Right now at this moment, I'd like to welcome you to come up. We'd love to welcome you to be a part of this family. We'd love to pray with you today. Amen. The altar workers can help me pray at this time. If you guys here at the altar would just remain as we pray and just anoint you quickly. Ask for God to continue his work in you. God bless you. We're going to just be praying here at the altar, but I'll release you for those who have to go. May God's blessing and favor and peace be yours. May you be in love with the Jesus way. May you never try to improve upon the Jesus way, but instead surrender. Surrender to the call. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We pray for you here at the altar.